0: welcome to this new series of the Poetry on the Move podcast. In this episode, the first of a two-part podcast, Poetry That Resists, recorded at the Poetry on the Move Festival held in Canberra in 2019 and hosted in conjunction with Australian Poetry. During the socially traumatised times of history, the ability of poetry to express human conscience has seen it embraced as a significant art form. In this panel, a discussion on poets and poetry that speaks back. Poetry that utilises the active, lyrical power of poetic language to express moral and political dissent. The first speaker is Jen Webb. Jen Webb is Distinguished Professor of Creative Practice at the University of Canberra. Her books of poetry include Stolen Stories, Borrowed Lines and Moving Targets.
1: I was exposed very early to the, um, to the mixes between art and speaking back to power, speaking back to official violence through the stories of my great-great-aunt um, Olive Schreiner, who was a South African writer of fiction, poetry and polemic, a Fabian. She's what Nettie Cloutie calls, quote, a member of the genteel provincial English South Africans, as am I, of course. And one of the very few voices in late 19th century, early 20th century South Africa, who was demanding the enfranchisement of all South Africans, regardless of color, culture, language, or religion. They didn't come for her. The they did not come for her because she was a privileged and Anglophone. They, in the form of the British Empire, came for the Afrikaners, the Boers. And um, she was one of the very, very few Anglophone South Africans who stood up And and argued for their rights. They were being massacred by the Boers, uh, um, clear earth, uh, assaulting the land, killing all the crops, incarcerating the women and children in concentration camps where most of them died. And so along with most of the farm workers, a lot of black people died there as well. And so um, Olive Schreiner was really agitating for it. She and a small handful of poets and writers risked their own lives during that war because the Cape Colony was under martial law and you were not allowed to speak out against what the British were doing. And they published a collection of poems and short pieces called Songs of the Felt, Felt being, of course, the land the country. Um, This could have seen them tried for treason, but they didn't. Uh, They were under conditions of anonymity, so later scholars have come along and said, that's so-and-so's poem, that's so-and-so's. But also, they were all quite rich and powerful. So it's it's always always easier to speak back to power if you speak from a position of power. Um, One of her poems in that volume is called The Cry of South Africa. And by the way, at that stage, most people weren't saying South Africa. They said the Cape or Natal or Free State or whatever. And her poem starts like this, it's in the voice of the country, give back my dead, they who by and Fontaine first saw the light upon my rocky breast, give back my dead, the sons who played upon me, and it goes on about this, you know, the slaughter of the innocent. Her poems and prose are very polemical. She seems to have believed that writing makes things happen. She wrote to one uh, of um, the prime minister, an important prime minister, Jan Smuts, uh, until she died in 1920, instructing him to stop being nasty to her black Africans to start being more confident and positive about progressive politics. She was quite a cool dude. She was a century ahead of her time and, and South Africa has, you know, kind of, you know, by the by early 1990s, mid-1990s, South Africa finally had become a non-racialist country. Um, and, but I grew up uh, in a condition of, of oppression and violence, of murder, both judicial and non-judicial where every public utterance was risky and the creative act was always a political event. My country was not learning this. This, ha- this we see all through history from the very earliest times and we see it right across the world, here, now and before. Artists reach for their art for usually to fight back. And I think now is a beginning of Herbert's poem, uh, Five Men, which is about an execution. And this came out of his, uh, his, the life he lived under first Nazi and then Soviet oppression. They take them out in the morning to the stone courtyard and put them against the wall. Five men, two of them very young, the others middle aged. Nothing more can be said about them. And it goes on into several stages where he does say a great deal about them and about the role of poetry in conditions of of oppression. His response was to write very minimalist poems, to focus very closely on individual people, as though that might somehow raise a shield around those who are suffering. I jump across to Pakistan where, in the 1950s, a great Urdu poet, um, Faiz, uh, Ahmed Faiz, was arrested and found guilty of treason, and he survived by going into exile. I uh, always used poetry as a, voice, as a voice. In 1941, when the whole country was still under a British colonial rule, he wrote what was probably his most famous poem called Bol, or Speak. It means speak in English. Um, obviously, it urges resistance and it urges speaking back. And it kind of was always quite important in the country. And then in 2007, when the, you know, honored Musharraf suspended the constitution and dismissed the chief justice of Pakistan, people all across Pakistan started um, writing bol on their clothes, on the buildings, on cars, on roads, reminding everybody of that poem, reminding of the, the right and the necessity to speak back when they come for you. I'll jump back to South Africa because I find it hard to get away. Poet and scholar, who is now, Oh, he was last year, he may still be South Africa's poet laureate. He wrote in his 1972 volume, Inkomo*. Um, just a little bit, he was very young now. The poem starts, white people are white people, they are burning the world. Black people are black people, they are the fuel. And of course it goes on, sadly. He was arrested in 1969 under the terrorism act. He was held in sorority, confinement for nine months, let go, then he fled into exile. He spent a lot of time in exile. In response to his incarceration, he wrote some beautiful lines, including this, as silent as plant bloom and the eye tells you something has happened. Look, I've been name checking poets who, when they come for you, reach for poetry. But readers also reach for poetry. While he was held on Robben Island, Nelson Mandela, Madiba, recited often the poem Invictus, which was written in 1875 by William Ernest Henley. Uh, the, the one stanza is, art of the night that covers me, black as a pit from pole to pole. I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul, which he did have. And I find it I find amazing, being who he was, that he reached for English poetry, of all things. Now, we know about many other people over the decades. It's happening today. Uh, just last year, Palest- Palestinian poet Doreen uh, Tatoo was sentenced to five months in an Israeli prison for publishing on Instagram a poem she wrote on the grounds that it was, quote, inciting terrorism. Now, I'm not, I'm not a fan of Instagram poetry. I'm not a fan of her poetry. Uh, and I don't think it's a particularly good poem, but it is an example of the courage that she had to do that, knowing the situation she was living in, the courage she had to respond when they came for her with poetry of all things and with an unquenchable spirit. My own life, I've, I've, I've been working, you know, I'm, I'm 503 now, and I've been working very hard <laughs> to shake off the, both terror and rage and resistance. My poems do tend to the bleaker view of human history, human society, human being, and I do apologize for this. But I have an investment in the horror of apartheid. Not only is my great-great-aunt, Olive Schreiner Cronwright, an antagonist to that approach way back in the 19th century, uh, but my uncles, also Cronwrights, um, in the 60s had to flee into exile. Another quote uncle, my mother's twin cousin, Ben Cronwright, was banned for five years because he was a journalist and he was permanently injured by that banning. And his brother, Arthur Cronwright, was, uh, I think, the only English, um, English-speaking, English-based member of the secret police and a genuinely bad person. The Truth and Reconciliation Council, some years later, held him responsible for the death of Neil Aggett, who was a doctor and anti party activist who committed, committed suicide in prison after being tortured under Arthur's, um, Arthur's orders. And I, th- I suspect Arthur himself was there too. He was also, by the way, the only white person to die in detention during that whole period. Um, he was held for 70 days first without trial, faced retouch all the way through and gave up. The Truth and Reconciliation Council didn't call Uncle Arthur because the record says he was too unwell, by which they mean he was nuts, he was incapable of reason. In recent years, his fellow monster, Mr. Erasmus, is facing civil suits over the death of Agate. But Arthur had escaped prosecution because he was already dead. And When I think of his death, I think of Kurt Vonnegut, what he says of such people, no great loss. Now, raises the context of this panel because his actions and those of who knows how many across history and culture have caused bitter suffering and have also generated reactions, galvanized reactions, resistance that often come in the form of art, often poetry. Poetry doesn't form a shield. All poets know that. Lorca certainly knows that. When they come for you, they come with laws and with guns and the pen is not mightier than the sword but the pen is quick the sword is quick the pen is slow the sword is soon soon through its business the pen can, what the, the pen does goes on and goes on and goes on and the record long art lives the sword so i do think it's worth doing the last thing i want to say is that terrible tri- times often extract from poets and from non-poets a kind of poetic utterance a kind of a lyrical framing of everyday language which i think is because heightened emotion is best born best supported by retreat to the abstraction of metaphor I often uh, read the transcripts of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission like other people might read, you know, their holy books. Last year, I found a section where my uncle Arthur's sidekick, Mr. Erasmus, um, is speaking about Arthur. And I've I, I redacted some of that, taken up what I think is superfluous. And I just thought about the poetry in everyday speech, which I'll read to you. Um, Mr. Bezos, I was called one night to Colonel Cronwright's house at 2 o'clock in the morning and I was given an instruction to kill the station commander at Florida Police Station. Cronwright would simply sit and rant and rave like the madman he was and say, I want these people wiped out. And in your case, Mr. Bezos, yeah, I don't know how you honestly survived this because he hated you with a passion that was unbelievable. I saw another side of him. I felt sorry for him. I'm just mentioning that. But Colonel Cronwright was imbalanced at the very least. And he was. I'll finish with the first of a small part uh, the first of a multi part poem I wrote in the last book that Shane patiently published for me it 's about when they come for you and This one was based not on personal experience but on my observation. Uh, I saw it happen. First we knew of it was the hammering on the door when the upstairs room guy drew back the bolts. A rush entered, the sound of dogs howling, and the stained glass panel fell from its lead and lay in bright patches on the floor between spills of light. Patterns of eternity, someone murmured, and the rest said, hush. Clearly someone had done something wrong, but no one was about to confess. They led us to the van, chained in a line like circus elephants, we filed out, heads lowered swaying from side to side. Thank
0: you. Next up is Kai Miller. Kai Miller is a Jamaican poet, novelist and essayist. He has won the forward prize for his collection, The Cartographer Tries to Map Away to Zion, And his most recent collection is In Nearby Bushes. He is professor of English and Creative Writing at the University of Exeter.
2: So my my remarks are not as composed as Jen's. Um, Just speak some points that I wrote down. And it's not that I haven't been thinking about it, I think there is a kind of resistance came about, which is probably absolutely ideal, and I'll try to explain some of that. So yeah, so I, uh, when I got the email that we had been, you know, put on these separate panels, uh, and I saw the panel I'd been put on, yes, I felt this twinge of something, uh, and it wasn't quite annoyance, <laughs> but it would have gotten there, and so I had to sit down and live with that and think about why, why did I get that tinge? and it was that I wanted to resist the idea that my poetry resisted, which completely circled back on itself and made me think, oh shit, well, probably I am <coughs> ideally placed on this, but why did I want to resist that? Uh, and I guess I can just t- just tell you some of my journey as a poet. Uh, when I first landed in England, uh, where I've been living for the past uh, 10, 11 years, oftentimes when I got invited to poetry panels, or just to give a reading generally. Uh, in the first few years, they would often introduce me, here is Kai Miller, the performance poet. And again, that annoyance. <laughs> uh, and I thought that there was something racial in that. And it's not that I had any problems with performance poets, and not that I don't acknowledge that my poetry can be performative at times, but I was being published by one of the major presses in the UK. I'd never done any performance gig, and yet that was the easy way to identify me. And I, so I guess I wonder about the idea that my, that my body uh, puts me in a position that's very close to the performative and to the political, uh, and it just often, it often didn't want to acknowledge that my main struggle was on the page with how to put words together uh, with how language means, how language operates, why why was society resistant to that idea of my poetry? And so probably whenever I am put into that place where even though I am, I talk about politics, I think about politics, it, it fires up so much of what I do, it, it isn't what drives me to the page, if that makes sense. And so, and so I think it was a tinge of that that came about, that, that I had to speak from the political. Uh, In another sense, I know that I I am a Caribbean writer. I've lived in the UK for, again, uh, 10, 11 years, but I've never been confused about the kind of work that I'm responding to, the kind of work that I'm writing back to, and that has always been about the Caribbean. Uh, When I won the Forward Prize in the UK, uh, about four years ago, all of a sudden, there were all these kind of articles, these Guardian articles, and uh, all of them s- celebrating the work of the British Caribbean poet. I'd never been British before that moment. <laughs> uh, but, 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 but finally, finally, you you win a big award and you become British. Uh, Unfortunately, I mean, I, I, I really have no claims to Britishness. I don't, I don't even have a British passport, as you all know, because of how hard it was to get here. <laughs> uh, but but I understand that that is, again, a kind of... How do I say this? I, I know that to send to the Caribbean, to write to that place, um, to consider oneself as writing to that world... Uh, to place oneself so solidly there is an act of resistance. And I guess I resent that. I resent that it should be. Uh, you know, Toni Morrison once said uh, that the, to, to simply write, the man walked down the road, is to assume that he's white. If, if you want to create a different image, you have to write, the black man walked down the road. Uh, but you see, when I write my fiction, I will simply say the man walked down the road. And if you don't realize that the world I'm writing from racializes him, a different, racializes him in a different way, then that's, that's your problem. Uh, so that idea of writing to my world without acknowledging an international audience, without being concerned with their gaze, without being obsessed with it, without pandering to it and giving them a handout. I know that is an act of resistance, uh, but it doesn't feel like resistance to me uh, because I'm simply placing myself in the world that I grew up with. I'm simply writing back uh, to my family, to my neighbors. And I know that that has, I know that I have an international audience now, but I, it doesn't concern me. It doesn't concern the writing. Um, and again, that doesn't feel like resistance. So. Again, I, I acknowledge that, but it's there. There's something troubling there. Uh, the other thing I was resisting, even in the Caribbean, so I have placed myself in the Caribbean, uh, and in the Caribbean, I was also resistant to the idea of being a poet who was interested in resistance, and that's a wholly other, that's a wholly different reason. So, growing up and coming to the page, coming to writing. uh, You know, on the poetry scene in Jamaica and in Trinidad, uh, you know, when you're 17, 18, 19, and you're going to these readings, everyone was, uh, as we would say in Jamaica, you know, in Rastafari language, you're chanting down Babylon, you are against the system, against the man. Uh, And I wanted to resist that idea. It's not, again, that my poetry wasn't doing that, but uh, I guess this is a weird acknowledgement that I come from privilege. Uh, And over and over again, I was seeing my peers who would, you know, go to the mic and read the most incendiary poem about the man and the system and capitalism. And then, you know, having read their poems, they would jump in their Mercedes Benzes and drive home where... Uh, the maid had prepared their food, and I thought, my God, how do you not see yourself as implicated in this system? But again, it was simply because we were Caribbean people that it made us hold on to that label easily. And I thought, I am interested in resistance, but part of resistance means acknowledging my own power. It means acknowledging the ways in this world that I am a man, and that comes with certain kinds of privileges. That I come from the middle class, that that comes with a certain kind of privilege. That in the UK now, I am a professor that comes with certain kinds of privilege and even though I can rest very easily in oh I'm a black immigrant and believe me there is a lot of shit that comes with that uh, you know our bodies are complicated sites uh, where, where, where privilege and disadvantage they interchange over and over again depending on where we are and how we are interacting and and I guess for me just the label of resistance was too easy it wasn't complicated enough about my own subjectivity in the world, if that makes any sense. Uh, I guess the other thing is that I I was aware of myself being involved in resistance in other ways, uh, uh, both in my life and writing. Well, you, you said very uh, diplomatically that I write essays and that they're sometimes controversial. Uh, This wasn't always the case. Uh, uh, This blew up about a year ago. I wrote one little essay. I I thought it was a very generous uh, essay. Uh, I was in the Caribbean when it came out. I remember landing back in England and picking up The Guardian, and there was my picture on the front page, and it said, incendiary essay by Kai Miller creates tension across the Caribbean. (laughs) <laughs> I thought, jeez. Uh, for the past few years, I have been writing, and I think it'll come up next year, a series of essays called The Most Important Things. That comes from a line by Dionne Brand. So Dionne Brand is a Trinidadian uh, Canadian poet. And years ago, she was giving this talk in Canada, where she lives, in Toronto. And she started with this... Uh, She started her speech in in a manner that has stuck with me all these years. Uh, She said, she began, uh, and you have to imagine that I'm Dionne Brand right now, she said, uh, that I am a black woman addressing a white audience is part of the present text, because race mediates all of our exchanges, personal, political, sexual. It means that there are some things I am about to tell you, and some things that I can't tell you. And the most important things are the things I can't tell you. And I've always wondered about those moments. What are the most important things that I cannot say at a given moment? Because race gets in the way, uh, the cost of friendship, uh, we'd feel awkward doing it. And I've been trying to write back to those moments. But as an essayist, I am very aware of myself as resisting, as being political. Extremely aware of myself, uh, but you know but so so these are those different senses. there is who I am as an essayist, there is who I am as a novelist who again is very political, uh, not in the same kind of polemic way, but I think to write fiction to to think about the story, to think about tension is necessarily to think about power, how power is not equally divided, and how your characters have different experiences with power. That is what it means to write fiction. And so to think about that, you have to think about the politics of the situation that they're in. What puts that character at risk? Why, what puts him in danger? Because that is the heart of the story. Some Something is at risk, and you are worried about it. Something might happen. If nothing might happen, there's no reason to turn the page. And so, to think through fiction, to think through story, is to think through power. And so, again, as a novelist, I'm very aware of myself, uh, at least being political, being res- and it, and the other aspects of my life is that I sit on several boards. You know, I sit on the board of uh, the main kind of uh, human rights organization in Jamaica, thinking about uh, queer rights and LGBT subjectivity. Uh, and I'm aware of supporting the work of people who resist in very practical. Uh, ways uh and so sometimes I think, as a poet, am I resisting in the same way that I resist in other areas of my life, and I guess that's a final thing I'll say that it made me think about my practice as a poet uh, and in my practice as a poet, I know that I'm resisting i you know it but again it's not it's not the thing that I'm concerned with. That, I am not concerned with, it doesn't mean that the poem doesn't resist. It doesn't mean that it's not engaged in those kinds of movements. Uh, but it's just not what I think about. What I think about is language. Uh, how language means, uh, how, how it can mean, how it does mean. Uh, there's a poem I wrote years ago um, about Goldilocks. You know, the story of Goldilocks, right? Which, uh, for me, was always a really disturbing story, right? Yeah, okay, yeah, that is fucked up. Uh, <laughs> I mean, so, and again, and this might reveal how I have been shaped politically way too early. Uh, but, you know, if you think about the story, there is uh, a little girl who is racialized as white, you know, because she has... Gold locks, right? Uh, She goes to the house of uh, people with darker skin, you know, the bears, and she goes in uninvited into their house, and like these are clearly middle-class bears, right? (laughs) Or, or, or at least upper-middle-class bears. I mean, mean, come on, they have furniture. you know they, you know they, they have this whole house you know it's clearly the suburbs but you know but they've gone out on a walk i mean jesus christ they're perambulating through the woods so you know, so these are clearly very cultured uh dark people uh, <laughs> And Gold, you know Goldilocks enters the house and proceeds to destroy their things, I mean Jesus Christ, uh, the darker residents they return to the house and you know in some versions of the story, you know when they encounter Goldilocks in their house, having destroyed things, the bears get depicted as the savages, and I think, oh God, I know that story, uh, you know that story has resonance in all kinds of ways. Uh, You see, that is what draws me to poetry. And again, uh, having said it like that, I know that 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 seems like it's resistance. But you see, what I'm interested fundamentally is language. I'm interested in resisting the idea that language is ever neutral. I'm interested in resisting the idea that language is ever not political. I am interested in resisting the idea that language is ever not complex. And the job of the poet is to go to the foot of language, to listen to it, and to say to the world. This is so much more complex than you're thinking. This holds so many more positions that you're willing to acknowledge. And if in the most playful way I can rip language apart and give it back to you, exposing it for what it is, then that's what I'm going to do. Uh, but that comes with an interest in language and listen to it, listening to it, listening to how it moves, listening to how it means, and repackaging it. Uh, and that's, that's probably how I resist. Thank you. Thank
0: you. That was Kai Miller and Jen Webb speaking at the twenty nineteen Poetry on the Move Festival on the panel Poetry That Resists, hosted in conjunction with Australian poetry. Our next episode will feature the second part of that panel with Broman Lovell and Alison Whitaker. This podcast was brought to you by the International Poetry Studies Institute at the Centre of Creative and Cultural Research, Faculty of Arts and Design at the University of Canberra. My name is Shane Strange. Thank you for listening.